1: Oh. M. Mom! Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi, Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today, we are joined by my friend, my drag sister, my co-conspirator, my co-star, co-creator, co-writer, of the Jinx and Dela holiday show. She's also the director, head producer, costume designer, and many other things of said show. Um, and she's also a return guest here on Hi Jinx. I think this marks our third episode with Ben Dela but hello, hi Dela. Hi Jinx. How are
0: you? <laughs> it's so wonderful to be here with you. Oh hush. On this is Hi Jinx.
1: This is our this is our one off day. <laughs> Um, in many, many on days. And this is our first day not doing drag in maybe 10 days.
0: Yeah, I think it's at least 10 days.
1: So we've been really busting our chops for the Jinx and De La Holiday show this year, but it is very, very worth it. It's um, a very, very good show, but... We'll talk all about that. How you doing in general?
0: I'm doing good. I'm sleepy today because of all these drags we've been doing, but I'm doing very well. <laughs> I feel happy about our program, and I like the people that we do it with, one of which is you. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's not much going on in life outside of no. this tour.
1: So... Why don't we talk a little bit about what tour life entails? Like, especially at this point, when we do so many cities in a small chunk of time, and we're very blessed to have the resources to be able to be on tour buses versus airports. Everyone knows I hate airports, so I don't need to go off about that.
0: But But, I can tell you a little more about how much (laughs) she hates airports if you need me to.
1: Um, (laughs) But what that means is um, we have entered a stage where basically our whole life is the show. Um, my phone is the only way I get any new information and even that is very select. Um, so there's a lot of things going on in the world that I don't know nothing about because I'm just all twenty four seven Jenkins and Dale Holiday show. Oh, for sure. It's like Groundhog's Day. We wake up, we set up, do the show, tear down, do it again in a new city. Exactly. Yeah. Do you like that routine?
0: Uh I do. I mean it really You know, like I said, it's the the older I get, the more it takes out of me. However, um, yeah, I mean, I I really enjoy it. It's fun to be in the rhythm of uh, performing something and like kind of the regular schedule with everybody, especially after the intensity of the actual creation process, Mm -hmm. which is so. which can be kind of frantic and it's stressful in that you don't know what's coming next. Like a creative process is so unpredictable. You don't know when, uh, the idea is going to strike when, you know, when you're going to have to hustle to complete it. And when you're touring, it's just, I don't, you were describing, uh, putting the needle on the record the other day.
1: Yeah. It's nice when you get into the groove enough where Yeah, you can just set up the show. You and I, more than ever this year, it's like we kind of just walk on stage and we know the show's going to happen. We know it's in our bones and in our brains. And that's a really nice place to be. And a big part of that was getting a very lengthy creation um, window and a very lengthy rehearsal window, which was our first year doing that. So it really goes to show um, when you carve out enough time to work, On something. (laughs)
0: Well, I also think it's, but it's also like our years of working together Mm -hmm. because it's not, I mean, like it is that it's that we made really great material this year and we both trust it, but there's also, I think more trust between us as performers. And it's not that there hasn't always been trust, but like, I think more than ever on stage, we, uh, we kind of know that no matter what happens, we are a team that can kind of navigate any moment and navigate it, not just to get through it, but, but actually mine gold out of it. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, improv is definitely an acquired skill and I've always felt confident in my improv skills, but one thing that we've gotten, I've gotten better at through the years is, Not letting, um, like, letting the moment have its comedy. Acknowledging the moment, but not letting it derail the whole show.
0: Yeah, I mean, because these (laughs) these shows we do, and especially this year, I would say, but I I think, you know, always our shows our narrative, they have an emotional arc, they have character arcs. And so you want to be able to play. You want to be able to like be in that live moment with the audience. You want to like acknowledge what's happening in the room and you want to have fun with it, but it's striking that perfect balance between doing that and, and keeping the entire audience engaged in the story that you're telling. And I think this year we've found a lot of really fun ways to do that. Yeah.
1: To do both, to like kind of like um stick to the script, but find new moments within the confines of the script, which is something I gotta say It was like a brilliant refresher for me doing a scripted show that was someone else's work where I can't toy around with the script. When I did Chicago, like every night- you did Chicago? Every night it felt like we were finding new discoveries because we were staying present and in the moment, and we really looked each other in the eyes and we really had the conversations on stage. And there was like very little rehearsal between actors But we would go on stage and just trust that as long as you stay present and you trust that the other person's present, you're going to get through it. Um, So it was kind of like really exciting to be reminded that there is still a sense of freedom and playing around even within the confines of, a, of well, a text. And
0: I think we've been especially and consistently present with each other on stage this year for whatever reason. And I, yeah, and I, I think it's also a thing that it's like when you really uh, kind of submerge yourself in a story the way that we have to this year, there's like an internal logic that, uh, you know, it's not just being present with us, but it's being present with like what the journey of this narrative is. Mm-hmm. And uh, remembering kind of more than any other year, knowledge gets revealed to us as the story goes on. And so any given moment, we have to know what we know in that moment and yeah. not what we know broadly as the yeah. artists behind it. If that does that make sense? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, that's what makes that's what makes like, um, seeing a show that's about an absurd premise it still feels were you know, like I don't like absurdity for the sake of absurdity. I like absurdity towards a goal. You know, I like yeah. absurdity in storytelling, but not like just a, a string of non sequiturs. And right. I think some people can conflate the two. Yes. But, um, uh, our show has some really absurd <laughs> circumstances, but I don't want to give away too much. Um, I do want to talk though about the production element because we've been getting, uh, we've been doing for the first time this year um, a question and answer. A segment after the show, in lieu of a of a photo op, which tends to be more like a, you know, like a churn you through the the processing plant and get, get your photo, get a stamp on it. I called at a it. sausage factory the other day, and
0: you looked at me like I was a crazy person. But that is a processing
1: plant. I like a little more. Um, you know, imagination a processing plant could be anything. <laughs> just, or what about a Play-Doh factory? A Why Play-Doh isn't a sausage factory maker?
0: imaginative enough
1: for
0: you? <laughs> I think it's a very like vivid I just, image.
1: I, how, but I've seen sausage getting cased so much that it's just not an image I want to. For keep the people at
0: home, I would like you to note the gesture that Jinx is making while she talks about sausage being cased.
1: <laughs> um. <laughs> Okay, so we've been doing this Q&A and it's been giving um, an opportunity to talk about the process, which is not something, I mean, aside from talking on podcasts and interviews and stuff, we don't talk about the process a lot, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start farther back as I am wont to do. Um, I think one of my favorite things in life or one of the things that's given me a, a huge leg up in my life, is knowing exactly what I wanted to do my whole life. Now, Dela is the head of a uh, of a production company, a queer-owned and operated production company called Bendelikram Presents. She's self-produced um, most, if not all, of your solo touring productions. Self-produced, co-produced. You've been the head producer of all of your solo yeah, work. Yeah, you've um, been the head producer of the Jinx and De La Holiday Show for six years, which has grown exponentially. Um, and I've heard stories about you as a kid dressing up your cousins to make <laughs> to make shows in your backyard. So I have to wonder if this is exactly what you always knew you were going to do. Have you had a tunnel vision your whole life?
0: I think this was always what I was going to do. I don't know if it's it's always what I knew I was going to do, but it's always what I was going to do. Like Uh what I do now is, I mean, it's very, very sweet. I have had a an opportunity to really reconnect with the cousins who I talk about having like sort of, I always, in my mind, we were like putting on these shows together and then come to hear their, their experience reflecting back as adults. Apparently I really just uh, (laughs) kind of strong armed that situation. I mean, I think we all had fun, but, um, but it was also, apparently I was just as bossy then as I am now, but I didn't realize I can
1: imagine a bossy, bossy
0: little kid young. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 But, um,
0: (laughs) but yeah, I mean, it's, it's sweet because we've reconnected and they've come to a lot of my shows over the past few years and they always are like, it's just so amazing that you are still doing what you were doing when you were a kid, but at this level. And I really do think that to me, I mean, production is so hard Writing is so hard, as you know. It's like, it's all, all these pieces are so difficult. And, but there is like some bizarre, insane drive to do them anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's like, not, you know, people are like, Oh, your job must be so fun, or your job is, and it's like it's not. I can't describe it as fun. It's like this bizarre, insatiable drive that made me paint that fucking mural yeah. the other. Can I say fucking? Yeah. Um, that mural the other day when there was like no time. It was just like sometimes you just artistically have to do it, and I think I've just always kind of been like that. And it's that when you when you really get to it, it is that sense of play it's like hard work but you're playing it's like the you most the childlike you can be
1: the hard work is all setting up to give you a, a playground to play with like the yeah. hard work okay so we just were talking about how long and arduous the creation process is but then we get to put the needle in the record and just have fun doing the show yeah. That's kind of what you're talking about is like you have to do all you have to put in all the labor and the work to build the playground that you can then play in. But I, <laughs> and it's and it's
0: and it's definitely that but there's also this thing I can't describe that I've actually I've been thinking about it a lot and kind of trying to figure it out where I've always derived pleasure from that particular type of hard work mm-hmm. and I have zero drive when it comes to like Anything I'm not interested in. Like, I do not. I am not a person who enjoys hard work. (laughs) Oh, I know. Um, (laughs) But but when it comes to specifically art making, even when I'm at my, like, most just, like, when it's so hard, there is just, on this other level, no greater pleasure to me.
1: Yeah. I, okay. I am... Uh, I had a very brief stint where I was painting portraits with acrylic paints and the satisfaction when the painting was done and I was satisfied with the painting and I, you know, never took any painting classes. This was just something I was doing to try to get better at makeup. And I do think it helped eventually, uh, <laughs> but, um, i just the sense of like getting to step away from the completed project when you feel done with it and whether it's like what other people are going to like, but when you feel like, okay, I'm done with it, there is something like, I don't know. I get it just organizing my closet. Well, I want to see it. I want everyone to come look at the closet. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, there's something when there's like a, completed project that you can look at you know live performance it's fleeting and so there's uh, not often something to point to and say look i did that um is that where where did this fit into you going into school for visual art which i kind of think of like if you started life putting on productions and then you went to college for visual art and then found yourself back here what was that diversion about for you?
0: Well, I don't, it wasn't really a diversion because when I was very young, I was doing all this stuff, but I was also constantly drawing. Mm-hmm. My, my mom was an artist. And, like, from a very early age, I was just constantly by her side drawing and painting. She was in the studio all the time. And, uh, you know, and that's where I would go with her. And I would just, like, park at my little table next to her drafting table. And we'd just, you know, like, you know, be creative on on paper and canvas. And, um, and that, to me, has always just been, uh, it hasn't been hasn't been a separate thing from the sort of production performative things. I think it all comes from the same place. I'm a very visual thinker in, in either regard. And, uh, it wasn't until, and so I was sort of like involved in all those sort of aspects as a kid, excited about all of that as a kid, like, you know, through my adolescence, like I sort of, you know, I, I, Uh, I excelled in the art classes and in the drama classes and I took painting classes after school and, um, and what it came down to was a decision that the adults in my life were sort of forcing, whether they be just the, uh, the powers that be who create the educational system in the arts or the people in my life trying to influence me. But at some point there was this fork in the road where it's like, you have to choose one or the other. You have to choose the dramatic arts or the visual arts Mm. and, uh, and that was not something I wanted to choose. And I did, I was honestly very lost. It was a very stressful time in my life when I felt like I had to make that decision. Um, but I did. And uh, it was, I don't know, it was based on a lot of different things. And I really flourished in uh, the fine arts program uh, at the School of the Arts of Chicago. Uh, but I also for many years felt that I'd missed out uh, by not studying uh, theater or performance in any sort of formal way, and it it took a long time for me to realize that actually, I think uh, my fine arts education uh, really did right by me in mm-hmm. terms of how I approach performance and production because and I was actually just talking about this the other day a part of why I think you and I complement each other so much is because we have such different formal training Mm -hmm. but it means that we like I think one place I excel is that I'm I don't know the rules of theater and Mm -hmm. thusly I'm not bound by them and you do know them and so like together we kind of I have a sort of freedom in terms of how I think about developing work and then you have this really like precision way that of executing it Mm.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, we've been talking a lot this year about the way that um, uh, in the past, we have highlighted our differences for comedic effect. And um, this year we have very much made the um, decision, the conscious decision to put Jinx and Dela on the same team. And, because our writing and our work always reflects what's going on in real life, this is also kind of a testament to our friendship right now as we have really embraced recently, you know, the the aspects of teamwork that, are, that sometimes allude to solo performers. You know, it's so easy to let other people's opinions and outside influences get into your head. And then you start finding yourself Thinking competitive thoughts with someone who's just literally there to celebrate with you, mm-hmm. you know, to celebrate you, to su- celebrate themselves, to celebrate each other. And uh, Dayla and I have been actively working on highlighting the ways that our personalities and our traits complement each other and the ways that that helps us build the shows that we build um, and highlighting that aspect of our friendship. And it's, I think, really, really resonated with our audiences. Um I've been talking about friendships all year on this podcast, and now I have the person I'm always referencing right here. I don't know how much you want to share, and I'm not going to prod, but um, Dela has always kept an open mind to the metaphysical world. She's always acknowledged my practice of witchcraft. She's always um, made space for my practice of witchcraft, but hasn't always followed me into the depths. (laughs) I've gotten her to do a few spells and rituals. But this year, you had a bit of a spiritual awakening, and um, you feel free to share whatever you want to about it. But the the main thing that blew my mind is, in your own words, you described connecting with the spirit of the divine feminine, which is um, what Pam Grossman describes as the key tenet of witchcraft. So why don't you talk a little bit about your experience with the divine feminine,
0: <laughs> Wow. All right. Um, yeah, you know, I, in the, in the past handful of years in my life, I have, uh, been really focused on certain things and, uh, a lot of them are, Uh, practical, emotional, mental, like, you know, just certain areas of my development. Um, When I was younger, I did have a much more active spiritual practice. Um, I, for a long time, belonged to the Unitarian Church, and ritual is a really big, I mean, the kind of blanket thing about Unitarianism is, like, technically, historically, it branches out of uh, a Christian practice, but it now does not actually have a, a central uh christian faith there's sort of there are atheist unitarians there are buddhist unitarians mm-hmm. blah 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 um but community and ritual are kind of the uniting factors and so that those sort of spiritual rituals were something that were very very important to me uh in my teenage years and that i kind of lost my connection to in adulthood and the last few years i've definitely been like, okay, I have really nailed a lot of the other things I've put my mind to, but I really want to reconnect with this. And that's been a journey because I haven't known what that means for me. I don't know, I didn't know what reconnecting to that meant. Um, but
1: do you think um your strengths as a as an analytic as an analytical pragmatic person, do you think that gets in the way of your? Access to spirituality, or do you feel like you find a way to to um, uh, reconcile those two things?
0: I think it's not that easy an answer. I don't think it's. I, I just I don't think it's quite that black and white. But I do think that it. But I do think that in recent years. Um, I have really been focused on a lot of things that are, uh, practical and thought based. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, sort of the balance of the mind and the body and the messaging that come from both of them is really important. And I do think that I sort of went through, a, a period of time where I was so, um, connected to my thoughts, that I was losing touch with my intuition for lack of a better word, which is like the things that are equal to thoughts that your body tells you, as opposed to the things that your brain tells you. And, um, and, but it's not that that was always lost because I don't think art comes from the mind. Mm -hmm. So I think that, Anytime. I mean, that's part of the pleasure of an artistic practice is that it is coming from somewhere deeper. You're like feeling something flow through you, you know, that the pleasure of, you know, you were talking about painting. Uh, and I think something that is uh, that is part of what I really get hooked on in any artistic practice. When you're painting, yes, you step away and you see the painting and you're proud. When you're making a show, yes, you step away and you see the show and you're proud. But there's also this zone you get into where something is flowing through you. It's when you stop trying to solve the problems and the solutions just are presenting themselves and you're executing them. And I feel like that artistic process is the only place I was really experiencing access Mm -hmm. to that flow. And now I am, uh, more, uh, I'm I'm getting better at welcoming that flow into more aspects of my life. And it does feel to me, you know, this sort of divine feminine aspect came from, God, I don't even know how to talk about all this, but, uh, (laughs) but it, but it did, it, it came from a desire, to feel, I, I think it's tied to what you were talking about, about the, the sort of individual, individualistic nature of being a performer, of being in the entertainment industry of whatever, being a, a human trapped in capitalism in the United States of America or wherever. Um, you know, this individualistic thing where everyone's pitted against each other. And, uh, and that is a really toxic thing. And I think that I was, I've, it's easy to get caught up in the entertainment industry and get caught up in this, okay, what's the next thing? How do you like, you know, everybody sort of, it's, it becomes this rat race thing and it, and it loses the pleasure of being an artist and creating what, you need to create and so to me i was seeking to reconnect with that and get away from this other sort of thing i'd gotten caught up in and the way that that manifested for me was tapping into this uh relationship with the divine feminine and realizing that uh you know when this thing is flowing through me it it's coming from somewhere And I feel that I become sort of a vessel for this divine feminine. And that's, that's the label I've sort of put to it for simplicity's sake. But, you know, I've always felt that drag is something divine and spiritual. I have felt that since I was very young. I think that, you know, drag sort of like called to me in a way that I can't quite explain. And I think is, um you know, not easy for everybody to understand, but drag feels like something very sacred to me. And, uh, and I do think that that is people who feel that call are vessels for the divine feminine, um, are, uh, people who the divine feminine for whatever reason has decided that, uh, she favors and is willing to inhabit and is willing to let that person sort of, uh, forth whatever it is that that she has to give. And I also think like the divine feminine is a connection to my mom and her artistic practice and what she had to share with the world and her sense of generosity and the way that I carry that within my DNA. I mean, I, I think it's all, uh, but, but what it all gets away from is the individuality of it. Yeah. What it all gets away from is the, Me, this is about me, I'm doing something, I need recognition, I need whatever. And it gets into the, anyone who is sharing this artistic practice is serving the same purpose.
1: Yeah. You know, um, it just kind of makes me think of like, when there has to be something that draws a person to drag. There has to be something that is missing that they are going to get from drag and they see that and it, and it calls to them. And I, you know, like whether it's a connection to the, uh, to the divine feminine or a connection to this deeper sense of artistry, um, drag, I, I, all art forms are like this. You get called into it, but drag, is it's an art form that takes over your life like <laughs> it becomes your life it's a you've been describing it as somewhere between uh, an art form or career and a lifestyle you know <laughs> well I, I i
0: always talk about it as it's somewhere between an artistic practice and an identity
1: yeah and i i had my like reconnection moment um when i gave up drinking because Drinking was a way that like, I could still do the gigs that were starting to get really boring, um, still get through the the stuff that was kind of like draining the joy out of the artistic process of it yeah. for me. And when I quit drinking, I had to say, so what is uh, what was it about drag that called me to it before alcohol was this thing I needed to do it? And really, it was about creating my own work. And then also like, you know, feeling beautiful. And even though I hate doing makeup, and I wish I didn't have to, (laughs) I have been trying to build up the ritual around doing the makeup again, so that I like remember that this is this is my moment to transform. This is like my shape shifting. This is one of my powers. And if I give it intention, I get to step back like from a painting and really feel proud of it rather than just like slapping it together (laughs) with an attitude of resentment. And I think that just the joy that you can get out of, the joy and the power that you feel when you become your Persona, and if you give the the ritual of that reverence, that right there is tapping into that connection, and um, you know the divine feminine exists whether we acknowledge it or not. So, you know,
0: (laughs) and you know, I'm, and that's just the name I've been assigning to to whatever it is that I am connecting with, and I think it's as good a name as any. Um, I
1: think a lot of people, I mean, well, in my own work like uh just like in my own practices I've been trying to get back to what were ancient civilization practices when magic was real yeah. and when the existence of gods were a given and when people like appreciated the magic that kind of exists in life and in nature whether we pay attention to it or not and um so many cultures before Western civilization were matriarchal. And I just, I know that there's a divine masculine. I know that there's got to be some, you know, non-toxic male spirited energy that exists too, but he just doesn't interest me as much, (laughs) you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I think that one of the things that I think is really valuable about religion is that it um is that it favors ritual and it puts discipline to it and i think that uh that we have different things that we have culturally um put enough importance on that we have been forced to have a sense of discipline or sometimes that's personal like uh like work career. We're like forced to have discipline around that because that's how we have to function in society. Uh, for me, I really, uh, cultivated a sense of discipline around, uh, mental health practices, but I had fallen out of the discipline of ritual, which I think is just as important. And, you know, and I think that, Uh, you know ritual is connected to spirituality but there is just something about intention there's something about that
1: was gonna be my next point and I was gonna bring it back to our show because that uh, intention is a big part it's a big um talking point in our show this year and when we say the word ritual um for me, it's as simple sometimes as lighting incense and just well, this is claiming a- the space and making sure that the space is mine for that time. Well, and what I was, <laughs> you know,
0: I was going to say that, you know, in terms of that thing of connecting to... Either the thing, the divine feminine, or just connecting to the feeling that we originally had when we started doing drag and that getting into drag felt so powerful. And now it does feel like, oh my God, it's a little tedious. We do it all the time. But I have started lighting a candle right before I start doing my makeup. And to me, that is like the beginning of like, okay, I'm welcoming her here, whoever her is, whether it's like the divine feminine that's going to go through me, whether it is my character, whether it is my child self who is coming out to play. And then when the makeup is finished, I blow out my candle. And it's like, that is just that little bit of ritual has been giving me like a lot of satisfaction. And it feels like, okay, I am welcoming something and not just like, oh my God, I'm going through the drudgery of this face painting.
1: Yeah. I have two specific things I want to talk to you about. Um, One, it just kind of dawned on me in this conversation. I've known you for 15 years, and I never knew that your mother was an artist. And I have kind of been personally realizing that, uh, I've just been personally taking note that I've been hearing you mentioning your mother more in the last year or in the last couple of months of us being together than I've ever heard you mention her in 15 years of knowing you. And I wonder if this is about a reconnection to that spirit.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, in sort of my steps of exploring spiritual elements this year I have uh found a real connection to her in a very specific way that is about like what she instilled in me Mm -hmm. it's about like who she who she like raised me to be isn't quite right because that sounds sort of like I don't know, it's like she raised me to be me, Mm -hmm. you know, like she really like my mother uh, like welcomed me into the world with open arms exactly as I was in a way that I'm so grateful for. I'm so fortunate to have experienced that, even though when she died, it was a very abrupt end to Mm -hmm. that. Um, but, But I have been kind of recommuning with the parts of myself I like best. And those are the things that she cultivated in me. And also the, the characteristics of her that I still carry, you know, I mean, I am, uh, I am the only, like her only kid, uh, she was adopted. I don't know anyone else with her DNA. So as far as I know, I am the only living person carrying DNA of my mother, you know, the in, on this planet. And so there is, you know, a piece of her living in me from a scientific standpoint, as well as a spiritual one. And, and she was such an incredible person that like, I've started connecting that as like, Oh, she was like such a gift to me. Like I carry that gift and I want to share that gift because I'm so fortunate as to have received it. And so there's like this aspect of it. And then there's this other side that, um, I kind of came to this year. This is like all such, it's, it's like weird to be, it's, it's like sort of weird to be sharing this. Not because I feel like, uh, any in like, Like I don't want to share it, but just because it's like there's so much like sort of context and so much that has gone on in the last 12 months that sort of makes this sort of add up a little bit more and whatever. (laughs) But but the another very different thing that I think has allowed me to sort of reconnect with uh, what my mother gave to me and sort of talking about her more is uh, a letting go I think that I when you lose a parent as a kid or you probably I would assume anyone as a kid um and you don't have the tools to grieve mm-hmm. you never fully get to move on mm-hmm. and that is uh something that you know, I mean, you do move on. You like live your life. You don't think of that death every day, but there is like some little piece of it in you, I think. And it, whatever, I'm speaking from my own experience. I don't know why everybody's is, but for me, you know, I've dealt with like a lot of depression and anxiety throughout my life, and i I had this sort of I don't know this this moment this year where I kind of was able to put words to this. Ooh, is it, um, it's so hard to share this stuff, but I also think it's important because some people, you know, need to, to hear that they have a shared experience, but there has been a belief in me at uh, somewhere that I am, uh, at a base level, a sad person. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, And that I've experienced much joy and happiness, but my neutral will always return to sad. And that is something that I've really had to, like, battle. But when that is a core belief, all you can do is figure out how to, like, fight against it temporarily. Mm -hmm. And I came to sort of a realization this year that that core belief has not always been with me. But was sort of assigned to me at my mom's death. And that there has always been a part of me that felt the obligation to hold onto it yeah. in order to like honor her. yeah. And what I realized this year is that... Uh, that doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't serve me. It's not doing her any favors. She doesn't, you know, she wouldn't want that if she were here. And the reality is she's not here. And being able to sort of say like, yeah, she's not here yeah. actually is like super liberating because I think we always, those of us who, you know, lose important people in our lives, there is sort of like a pressure to be like, she's always with yeah, you. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know what? That's not great. I don't need her to always be with yeah. me. Like, And and I want more for the spirit of that
1: person I love than just, you know, checking in on me at all times. Exactly. um, (laughs) I got many more years with my grandmother than you got with your mother, but we both have lost very important um, maternal figures in our life. And I think constantly about, you know, if my grandma got to see where I was now and, you know, I think constantly about how she'd be sitting somewhere in the front row, lip syncing to songs that she couldn't possibly know because because we wrote them and she's never heard them before. But that's what she would do. She would move her mouth as if she, she could not listen to music without lip syncing along to it. It was hilarious. And she'd never know she was doing it. So I kind of imagine like my grandma out in the audience lip syncing along with our songs sometimes. Do you ever imagine what your mom would be doing if she were seeing our shows? (laughs) Oh God.
0: I mean, I've never like imagined her in the audience per se, but I do like, I mean, I do. I do know what she would think about what I do and what, I've created and that she would you know I mean it's just continuing the legacy of what she gave me I mean like you know even when we were drawing pictures next to each other like I can like I think of the specific the specifics of these like really whimsical colorful fun things we would create and I'm and I'm like I'm I'm still creating what she taught me to create and I, I think that's that's a word that I've reconnected with this year is, um, is whimsy. My mom had like a, in like a outrageous sense of whimsy in that it was like, there were, it was like playful. It was childlike and there were zero fucks given about whether it was like cool or like, you know what I mean? Like it was just, it was just play and there, it was like irreverent and, Um, and she was just, she always carried that with her into the, the very end. And that sense of whimsy is something I know I've already, I've always carried, but that I am, uh, that's a thing that's diminished, right? Like that, like silliness is really diminished in our culture. That word is like, sounds like baby talk, but, but silly is a pretty powerful thing. Like silly is like fuck off I'm being goofy and I don't give a shit what you <laughs> yeah. think you know
1: <laughs> I find silliness very sexy which is why Eric Andre has been at the top of my bang list for <laughs> so long um there's one other there's one other kind of deep uh, uh, dig in at the soul question. I want to, well, not even a question, but something you shared in a Q and a that I thought was very powerful. And I'd like to take a moment to talk about, um, especially with the state of the world, um, specifically the state of our country with um, a very small, but loud group who is trying to convince the queer youth of our country that you know, um, there's still a lot of people who don't want them to exist. I'm here to say the popular opinion is not on their side, but that doesn't mean it doesn't suck to listen to the conservative right talk about how much they hate us. That sucks. But um, that being a topic that we're dealing with in the queer community, um, uh, someone asked, Dela and I, what advice we would give to younger people who are seeing this hatred and vitriol and maybe seeing it for the first time because they've grown up in a in a better age for queerness. And now they're seeing the ebb and flow and the pushback and the way that, you know, the reason why we've fought for years for queer equality and civil rights. And DeLa said, I, I'm going to paraphrase and then you can um, explain it a little better. But Dana explain. Dana. 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 (laughs) There is no Dana. There's only (laughs) Zul. Dana said um, uh, on nights where she's having a hard time getting ready for the show because, you know, sometimes we're exhausted. Sometimes we're fed up with whatever. It's not always easy to smear the grease paint on again. But DeLa mentioned that when she is having those hard nights. She looks into her eyes in the mirror and reminds herself that the eyes she's looking into are the same eyes as the child version of her, who was once told that they were weird and different and told to diminish themselves. They were told to hide the parts of them that set them apart from other people and to train out the parts of themselves that make them abnormal and different. And she looks into the eyes of that child and looks at where she's at now and sees that all of those things that people told her to try to hide and try to diminish are her superpowers now. And when she thinks of young (laughs) Dela being told to diminish herself and the way those things that she was told to hide have helped her flourish. She thinks about the kid who might be out there needing to see those quirks and personality traits flourishing on stage. Um, I don't know if I did it justice. I think you you actually said it it more succinctly than I did. (laughs) But it's, I really, it really resonated with me um, because I had never thought of that. Like, so much of us change as we age. And, like, I look at pictures of me. I mean, like, uh, as a trans-feminine person, I don't look a lot like what I used to look like. I mean, you can see that I'm the same person. But you can see that I've, like, grown more into myself through the years. But one thing that is not easily changed is our eyes. We can't really change our eyes. It's you part know? of that whole
0: window to the soul thing. I mean, yeah. it really is, like, yeah, it's... Um, i i think it is would be wonderful probably for everyone to make more of a um a habit of looking themselves in the eyes like looking people in the eyes in general is something that can be hard for a sustained period of time you know it's uh it's 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 vulnerable and it uh and it's intimate. And I think having that sort of vulnerable intimacy with oneself is actually very powerful. And, and it is like, um, I don't, I don't look like I did when I was a kid in any kind of way. But when I really stare myself in the eyes, I can see that kid. And, you know, another thing that has been a big thing for me this year is the inner child connection and uh empathy for for one's inner child which is, is is sort of a weird complicated thing but um but in those moments i uh actually will just verbally say you know and 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 it's funny too cuz you were just talking about um you know, how I was saying, like, there's that kid in the audience who might need to see this. Mm -hmm. And like, as much as like all this stuff, I'm like, I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast. I'm like, whatever. Maybe there's one kid who needs to hear this, you know, whatever. I don't know. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I will literally stare into my eyes till I like, am only seeing that kid. And I will just say, like, I mean, I will just say, like, look at you, like, You did such a good job. Like you're, you're so amazing. Like the kid, the things that you would say to a kid that Mm -hmm. wasn't you, that was in that position, who you want to, it's so much easier to comfort and love someone who is not yourself. And, and I will literally take that time to connect with that kid. And what is so powerful about it is you wind up giving this love and you are simultaneously receiving it and it it feels like receiving love mm-hmm. and you realize that you are capable of giving that to yourself which is i think it's it is something we are all capable of that is hard to know you are mm-hmm. capable of and um and it makes you i believe more capable of having more love and energy to give. It helps me get onto the stage and bring everything that I want to bring to the stage and to the audience and to our interactions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, like, there's something about, okay, so, you know, this is our show. This is our baby. This is our business. It's a year-round job for you producing this holiday tour. It's, um, we wouldn't do it Every year, if we weren't getting a lot out of it, um, but I have to say, and this isn't to sound altruistic. This is just literally what makes doing this show easy and going through the long, arduous creation process is knowing that this show has a purpose yeah you know and any show you do can have purpose and it can be entertaining and it can be lighthearted. but when you identify what the purpose of the show is and when you go in thinking I'm gonna have fun I'm gonna get my rocks off getting my attention people are gonna praise me for my talents I'm gonna make people laugh. I'm going to make people happy. I'm hopefully going to plant some seeds of inspiration in their mind. But when you really identify what the purpose is and you make sure that you're, that purpose is an, is a goal in mind, you know, and that purpose can't be about making money and can't be about you. It has to be something that like makes this art mean more than just You know, the two hours of entertainment. And uh, I'm not saying all art has to be deeply profound or change your life or rock your core. I just think if we lose touch with why we do it, I think we lose touch with the spirit of what art is.
0: I think (laughs) for me, good art has a spirit of generosity if you are making art from a place of wanting a, a response to that art or needing a response to that art, I mean, that can, you know, whatever. That's part of it for sure. But but the the, the generosity toward the audience to me, like the fact that what you are doing is actually for them mm-hmm. is... That's what I always feel when a piece of art, like, affects me. And by affects me, I don't just mean, like, makes me weep or something. I also just mean makes me laugh, you know? Um, But it's it's when it's about connection and giving, I think. And that the art doesn't have to feel, quote-unquote, deep in order to do that. Yeah.
1: You know, we create fairly frivolous, seeming entertainment. But there's always a... I mean, drag itself, I think, from far away enough could look very frivolous, but I don't know anyone who thinks harder about every little goddamn aspect of their work than a drag queen. I mean, we have to, we're looking at ourselves with a microscope and um, you know, when you, when you put the care and the effort in, uh, the audience recognizes it, and the returns are great.
0: Wait, I just got curious. I'm I have to look up the definition of frivolity. I want to know like the actual like <laughs> definition of it because I don't know. I because I wonder whether the way we use it is actually it's uh, lack of seriousness, lightheartedness. Yeah, which is interesting because. I think we talk about frivolous mm-hmm. as like a negative, like, like
1: a waste of time. But
0: there, there is nothing negative in this no. definition. <laughs> but we do talk about it as if it's like less than. Yeah.
1: But um, you know, I I think uh, there's been plenty of examples of uh, comedy being a way into discourse, and um, it's always been my preferred way of conversating with people is cuz you were saying it last night in the Q&A but comedy allows people to let their guard down so that they can receive a message that they might not have been able to listen to before.
0: Yeah. People people are not especially I think in our current culture people are very uncomfortable with earnestness. I think people um if you come at them earnestly with a very like genuine thought without any sort of like
1: framing device. (laughs) Yeah. it
0: it, like, people can't hear it. Like people don't like it right now. They, they need everything to have like a joke or a bite or, you know, I, I,
1: you know, all, I think culture is all about ebb and flow. And I think we did have so much pathos and catharsis with the pandemic that we are in a time of like we need. <laughs> we, well, I think we've we been decanted, in that place for a long, long time. Them.
0: Like, but, but but I don't. I'm but see- I don't mind that because I love sure. comedy as a way to open to that, and it feels like it feels like a superpower to be able to unlock that in other uh-huh. people, right? Because my favorite thing is that every show I. have ever done has a deeply earnest moment somewhere in it where it is really just like full on vulnerable emotion, but you can, but it's like you trick the audience into opening up to you in that way through comedy.
1: I just have to say, I have been feeling like I've noticed a rise in comedy going for the jugular again, Mm. but it's directed at the enemies, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, we've had big conversations as a society about, comedy being more mindful and not punching down and not degrading marginalized communities. And I think I've been witnessing a lot of comedians. I mean, like Jon Stewart. (laughs) I don't know if he's a comedian these days, but he's not holding any punches. And I do see a lot. I think, you know, since him kind of just like laying into that uh, conservative politician, I just see comedians going for it and i love it because yeah. you know um we heard comedians griping for so long like oh, you can't say anything anymore yeah. without getting canceled no you just can't say stupid ignorant bullshit
0: anymore well and honestly <laughs> i'm not mad at listen like i understand like like cancel culture whatever is not it, it's it is like anything else that is um it's an oversimplification and oversimplification is generally mm. dangerous however I am grateful that people are becoming more and more unafraid to call people out for, for, you know, jokes or humor. Like, like I think we're putting up with that whole, like, it's comedy, you gotta let it go mm-hmm. because you know, I think we're putting up with that a lot less mm-hmm. And I'm glad we're putting on up yeah. with that a lot less because it is just because what it is is lazy comedy. It is Absolutely. actually not hard to write a joke that is not punching down. You're just lazy
1: and it's it's um it's weeding out the comedians who are wonderful examples of straight white male mediocrity, just getting ahead because they're playing to the lowest common denominator and they're a straight white male. Um, Comedy's where it's at. That's pretty much it. This is Jinx and Dela. This is a special two-part episode. Surprise! We're going to wrap this one to a close right now. But Dale is still here with me. We're sitting in our hotel room in Pittsburgh. And for the next part of this episode, which you can hear next week on Hijinx, we will be answering all of your fan questions.
0: So... I wish we were actually wrapping this to a close. Like, I want to end this with a wrap.
1: Well, we're not. Sorry. Wow. So, everyone, we'll see you next week for some more hijinks with my best friend, Ben DeLaCrimp. M. Oh. M. Mom! To listen to Hi Jinx One Day Early and Ad-Free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hi Jinx is produced by Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts, Executive Produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck,
0: Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio.